This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. We're approaching Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach, and with me on the show to discuss what this might mean for us is a good friend, colleague, uh, Rabbi Mike Foyer. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, Yudah. Thanks for having me. All right, so Pesach Sheni, it's really the uh, festival of second chances. I don't know, what, you, what can you tell me, what can you tell our listeners? How do you approach Pesach Sheni? Well, I, it definitely is the festival of second chances. Although, you know, I was taught by our mutual friend, Yishai Fleischer, to also look at it in a really beautiful way, which is if you look in the text of what mm-hmm. happens, that, that a, a group of people come to Moshe, a group of men that have been carrying, you know, say the bones of Yosef, it could have been the bones of all the tribes, but they were unable to participate. They come to Moshe and they say, we want, we want more. We want our shot. And so the lesson is not just that there's always a second chance, it's that when you ask, there's always more Torah that God's willing to give, right? Because then Moshe like goes back and he gets, so to speak, the download, right? He turns to God and says, what do I do? And there's like a whole new day that comes into the world. So beyond just the second chance as a makeup, I think it's a beautiful lesson for us that, that um, God always has more Torah to give. We just have to ask for it. Right. No, that is beautiful. I like that. That comes from Yishai? Yeah. Yeah, he says every okay, year. It's so- a beautiful thought. So it's great that we credit Yishai for that. And, uh, and I think in general, you know, uh, it's a, a good time to, you know, those of us who have leftover matzah from Pesach, it's a nice day to eat that matzah. Oh my um, gosh, because of the panic buying, so I have many... so much leftover matzah. <laughs> right. And, uh, right, so, so, you know, and you can have that matzah, I guess, with, uh, with foods you wouldn't normally mix it with on Pesach, you know, chametz type stuff. Or, or in our case, kidney oat. I mean, I, you yeah. know, I do not eat kidney oat on Pesach. I don't know about you. Oh, I haven't gone there yet. Although my kids, are, my kids are putting the pressure. But I, I'm, I'm into the Ashkenazi identity. Right. It, it's not just a question of identity for me. I think that, you know, and this speaks to the whole decolonization discourse that uh, the vision movement we've been having, that we have to be able to sift. You know, we have to be able to differentiate between changes that took place within our culture and identity that resulted from external coercion versus just internal cultural evolution, especially things that are based on our own commitment to our own people's values. Like kidney yeah. oat was really an alteration of Jewish practice or Jewish cuisine on Pesach that took place in Europe as a result of us being more loyal to the values of our ancestors, not compromising the values of our ancestors in the face of Gentile persecution or even Gentile offers of inclusion. Uh, This was really us making a certain change based on our own culture and our own values. And I think that's something that uh, shouldn't be thrown away so quickly. No, that's kind of what I meant by identity, that a lot of what I identify as the powerful shaping force of Ashkenazi, particularly Ashkenazi identity, is that sense of built-in sacrifice and the willingness to embrace stricture as a path of not only survival, but of spiritual practice. It goes, it goes quite deep into the whole culture of Ashkenaz with Hasidei Ashkenaz and, uh, and many of the other, the impact of the Crusades. Here we are, you know, during the Counting the Omer, this is a time that the mourning elements here, at least for Ashkenazim, has a lot to do with that same time period. So to me, when I say identity, I, I think we're speaking of the same thing, which is some mm-hmm. way in which we've taken historical circumstance and used it as a vehicle to bring out from within ourselves 
a deeper level of commitment and not, as you're saying, sort of the need to compromise to the realities of the time. Right. And also, I think there's a deeper issue at play. Uh, I think just from a historical perspective, when these changes take place, we should realize that there's something to fix inside certain parts of the national soul, so to speak. Mm. Uh, Similar to the issue of two days of Pesach or two days of Sukkot in the diaspora, there is a spiritual tikkun. There is something that the souls of diaspora Jews require that necessitates these double chagim, these two days rather than one day of Yantav. And of course, it starts with a confusion regarding the calendar, but that confusion is long gone, meaning we no longer yes. have the confusion over, you know, which day is which, yet Jews in the diaspora the Gemara was gone. to observe. Right. And, and yet we continue because obviously there's something deeper at play that diaspora Jews need the spiritual fix of the two days of Chag. And I think the same can be said for the Kitniot ban. I think there is something inside Ashkenazim as a collective that requires this ban on Kitniot as a tikkun. And once the ban is lifted, we can say that the tikkun has taken place, that there's no longer a need for the ban on Kitniot. But as long as that hasn't happened, I'll oppose those who try to lift the ban. And it could be an understanding of the phrase minhag avatenu biadenu. Right, that right. we that the reason that we do what we do now is because it's the custom of our ancestors, which is in our hands. Which, on a deeper level than simply saying we do what we do because it's what we've always done, on a deeper level, what I hear you no, saying it's in is our hands. that it's in our hands, and and therefore there's an act. It's a, it's an act of creation in many ways. Like I said, mm-hmm. historical circumstance can be looked at as coincidence, and then the way that we act in the world today is simply random chance or historical circumstance can be looked at in the way you're expressing it, which is divine intent or an Mm -hmm. invitation even. And then the way that we respond to it and who we look like today is expressive of that deep interaction between sort of our collective will as a people and the divine will as expressed through history. It's a nice, uh, it's a nice idea that you're, that you're speaking out there. Right, that's that's very well said, and I really like having these conversations with you because you do a really great job of articulating what I'm thinking. And yeah, I, I find I'm there that for you. you, you and I happen to be a, of a very similar mind on a lot of issues. So it's interesting when we get to do these shows together. That yeah, I'm happy to of, do it. You know, yeah. So Pesach Sheni is really one of many chagim that were either historically overlooked or just new. Uh, in the yeah. month of ER, like we're currently in the Hebrew month of ER, the second month on the Hebrew calendar comes right after Nisan. And uh, this is a month that is filling up with festivals in modern times. Like in our generation, you know, we had Yom Ma'ut last week, celebrating the day that the British left our country and statehood mm-hmm. was declared. And I think that's important. A lot of people might miss that. Was that was a careful fact. phraseology. I heard that. Very careful. <laughs> no, very careful, because I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding Yom Ma'ut. Even the average Israeli isn't clear what war are we celebrating. And I think we do have to remind ourselves the War of Independence was really a nine-year urban guerrilla struggle against the British Empire. That's what I would call the War of Independence. We fought the British for roughly nine years, starting with the Lehi, the Lechamech Rut Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel. Later on, I think in 1944, under the leadership of Menachem Begin, the Etzel, the Irgun, joined that fight. 
but it was really a nine-year struggle for freedom that ended when the British left our country. That is the day that we celebrate. That is the day we say yep. Hadel. That is the day that Israel declared independence. And then on the next day, on the 6th of VR, we were invaded by the armies of neighboring Arab states, two of which were armed, trained, and led by British by officers. British. <laughs> right. Yes. And that is not a war we won. That's a war that I think ends on like, I, I think it ends it somewhere tie. in the month of Adar. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the way I would look at it is the, the losers, the absolute losers of that war were the Palestinians. Like no they question. really lost worse than anyone else. Everything. Like that's, that's what they call the Nakba. Then uh, after them, I would say the biggest losers are us, Israel. Because we lost in, the cradle of we Jewish lost civilization. So much of, so of our and, territory in the heart of our culture. And Jerusalem, meaning you can't yeah. win a Zionist war if you don't have Zion. So yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. we lost that war. But, but because of our tragic history, we tend to confuse survival with victory. So we survived the war, but we didn't win the war. It wasn't just, victory. Just pause, it was will, you pause on that, will you pause on that sure. note? Because I think that's one of the more important things, perhaps, that I've ever heard you articulate. That because of our tragic history we tend mm-hmm. to confuse survival with victory. Yeah. And I think, I think that that has so much to do with the confusion around Yom HaTzma'ut mm-hmm. because, because we do translate it as independence, you know, right. Independence Day, but, you know, uh, independence is a strange term. It's not such a Jewish concept in, in its broader sense since we see ourselves as, as almost completely Talui. We, we, we're, we are dependent upon Kodesh Baruch We have, obviously have our own will and well, action say that's but, that's the real freedom the real freedom is well, the freedom to be ourselves but that, but that notice but that's not the word independent independent in mm-hmm. english you know is like I, I don't depend on anyone so so mm-hmm. the even even is a is a word that they had to be searched for and, and crafted for the purpose mm-hmm. and I, what i like to do is translate it well, as well a, it's also as amazing a, when, when you say atzma'ut it's like atzamot like the bones ah, like the day the that we got we, our bones back like the yeah. prophecy of yecheskel and lamed Zayn. and what else is an etzem it's not just a bone what else is it internally like what is the issue like what essence, are we talking right, about the, the right. essence so, of something right right so atzma'ut in many ways is a day of self-actualization mm-hmm. and this okay. is the day that we got enough of a platform and this is why I'm responding to your, to your very important point about the difference between survival and victory. We survived, and we didn't just survive, we got enough of a platform to begin to actualize ourselves, something we had mm-hmm. not had for 2,000 years. And I say hallel with, with a full, not only just a full bracha, but a mamish, a, a full heart every mm-hmm. year uh, on Yom Atsu because of my gratitude, even though I recognize the truth in what you're saying about, we did lose the war in many ways. Well, I no, no, we won the like, word that we, I, we, I'm saying we won the war that we celebrate with Halal, with the bracha on the 5th of VR. We won the war against the British empire. That's huge. Right. We, we, right. we won that war, think, although it's been obscured because I think that, you know, it's interesting that a national bourgeoisie, what we call Mapai, and you know, you're, teaching your listeners history and your show and just a quick plug your show is the jewish story right the jewish story that could be found on the land of israel.com network yeah you can also find jewishstory.co or you can just find me on facebook or mike for jewish story jewish story podcast google the jewish story you'll find it so on your show you are teaching our people's history and you know as well as i do that mapai the labor zionist party 
took power once the British left. But you also know that Mapai, the Mapai movement, labor Zionism, was actually largely collaborating with the British Empire against the freedom fighters. So you have this situation yes. where a, a national bourgeoisie, like this kind of empowered ruling class of the country that called itself socialist, but that's a larger discussion. They yeah. essentially took power when the British left. Um, had to obscure the story of how the state came to be because, of course, they had to credit themselves with the establishment of the state. So it was almost as if the underground struggle for freedom, this nine-year war that culminated on the 5th of the R, was almost written out of history. Like, well, that's not a... what happened. Something now, else if you happened. follow the logic, yeah, if you follow the logic all the way through, that that need to revise the classic revisionist mm -hmm. history means that the British weren't the enemy, the Arabs were. Which, mm -hmm. which, which leads to a, a track in history, because if you look from the liberation struggle that mm -hmm. I agree with you that we're really celebrating in our victory over the British Empire, which was right. unprecedented on that level, right? Mm -hmm. It's less than 10 years to, the, to us joining with the British and the French in an effort to maintain British imperial power in the Middle East in the, in the Sinai campaign. And right. there's, there's a straight line to the sort of demonization of the Arab world as our sole enemy, mm -hmm. which necessitates then our sort of Ben-Gurion sort of like uh, what I've seen called in the academic world, teleological Westernism, right? His sense mm -hmm. that, that, that uh, you know, the West is, is of necessity superior and we must ally with it, which by the way, and we want to pull it all the way through, creates a lot of our political problems today. Because, Absolutely. because the, the, you're probably thinking internationally, I'm thinking domestically. Because, you no, know, I'm thinking it was both. supposed to be a constitutional assembly. Yeah, it was supposed to be a constitutional assembly, but the Mapai basically pulled the bloodless coup. They gathered a constitutional assembly, and then within a week, they simply declared themselves to be the first to Knesset, in which they already had a majority. It, it, with no constitution, right. no process. You know, and here we are today at this uh, politically, let's say, somewhat rudderless stage. Right. Even after they've lost so much power, their ideological heirs have worked so hard to maintain power through alternative means. And the structure is built such that it caters to people who work that way. Mm -hmm. Right. So we don't have a, <laughs> a clear articulated constitution and a social contract around it that would allow us to even sort of leverage the so-called will of the people in opposition to the will of the professional politicians. Right. And all of this has its roots in their behavior in the British mandate period and in the early yeah. years of the state. Like, like you said, I mean, I, I think it was very well said in terms of this straight line between collaboration with the British and later collaboration with the British and the French in the Sinai campaign. You know, it's interesting because the fighters for freedom, the Lehi, uh, the Stern Group that led the struggle for freedom against the British had a very different understanding of what was taking place, a very different understanding of themselves as Jews fighting for freedom from foreign rule. I think they very much cast themselves in the roles of the Maccabees or the Zealots, you know, or any of the uh, historical struggles for freedom against imperial rule in our land. They yep. saw the British, of course, in the role of the Greeks or the Romans, and they saw the Arab world as potential allies. I think they really related to the other Semitic peoples as our natural allies. And the goal was, of course, to create this Semitic front against imperialism in the region. And Mapai, when it took power, did exactly the opposite of all that. It basically tried to ally Israel with the Western powers in opposition to all of our neighbors. 
And, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, like you said, this has ramifications all the way to today, domestically and internationally, how Israel perceives itself, how Israel interacts with its neighbors, with minority populations within our borders, and of course, with the international community. So I think that uh, it's important for us to examine these days, you know, uh, Yom Atzma'ut is the birthday of our state in modern times. It is yep. the day on which we return to self-determination in our land, to, to sovereignty over our country. I think there's something very deeply spiritual, very deeply mystical about that. I think that the land of Israel is our soulmate. I mean, even in all the Kabbalistic literature, we see that we share a soul with this land and the reunification of the people on the land has ramifications for the world on levels beyond what I think our senses can pick up. But I think a birthday is also a day for introspection and soul searching and asking where we're at 72 years in, what needs to be corrected, what can we work on? And I think just untangling the historical record and making a distinction between the war against the British to free our country and the war that followed afterwards, because, I mean, we said that the Palestinians were the big losers, and, and I would say Israel also lost, but the big winners of that war were really Jordan and Egypt, just simply Certainly because... Certainly territorially. Yeah, oh, I yeah, mean, I mean Transjordan became Jordan. I mean, they extended beyond the Jordan River and ruled Jerusalem. That's huge. Egypt conquered the Gaza region. I mean, they became bigger. We yep. became smaller. I mean, in terms of, if you look at... Uh, from my perspective, the territory we were holding before being invaded was all the territory we forced the British to leave. So that means we had Gaza and we had Jewish communities in the Gaza region and we had Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. We had Jerusalem, meaning there were communities like Kfaretzion or even the old city of Jerusalem or Kfar the Roman yeah. Gaza, where the Jewish populations were forcibly expelled during that war. So only if you look at history from the perspective of the establishment that wrote it, meaning that the UN partition plan is where we got our legitimacy. You know, that I think became one of the major political myths that was promoted by Mapai because that written into the Declaration of Independence. Right. We're talking about a general assembly recommendation. We're not talking about a binding legal resolution. We're certainly not talking about the Security Council. We're talking about the general assembly making a recommendation to partition our land in half, taking a whole lot of land away from us that we had forced the British to flee. Although, you know, credit where credit is due is Ben-Gurion, as much as he insisted on placing the UN resolution front and center into the Declaration of Independence, what he refused to do was put a map. Because mm-hmm. is, I, I, have a, I have a great episode, I can send it to you later, about um, mm-hmm. how the one of the decisions that he really made was he, to let the war set the borders of the country and not the UN resolution. So, you know, credit where credit is due. He understood that, as you said, rightly with the British, that all the territory that was ours was what we managed to clear them out of, that it was going to work the same way in the future. But, but you know, one of the problems was is that he understood also very quickly that the best way to maintain the power of his own party, and I don't want to place Ben-Gurion as some sort of power-mad individual. He believed very deeply he was serving the interests of the state and the Jewish people through his own interests as well. One of the, the easiest and most sort of smooth way to do it was to pull down the British flag and to put up the Israeli one and to right. not go through the process that you're recommending, which is asking, wait, what does it mean to be a people in our land? What does our freedom, right. what's our self-actualization? That was not at all what happened. Right, who are we? And, and, but really, I think the, the main issue I'm taking is that he took credit for 
the work of others, meaning he oh, obscured no question the role that. being played in, you know, establishing the state, those who actually uh, fought for freedom and be sacrifice. honest, he didn't just obscure it, he erased it and he banned the people who participated in it and he and often politically persecuted them. Even someone as, as mainstream, so to speak, as Menachem Begin, he kept into the political wilderness until he was dead. Right. And of course, that confuses us till today. Because like, let's get back to this confusion of victory with survival. survival. If your goal is survival, you could say we won the war against Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon and Syria, yeah, absolutely. etc. We won if we survived. Uh, but if we were fighting for survival... Yeah that has ramifications for what we're willing to do today. Whereas if you're fighting for Jerusalem, if that oh, yes. war was a war for Jerusalem, for the land of Israel, then that also has ramifications. So I think like as we understand that war or as we understand the, the events of that period, it, I think that the way we choose to interpret the events says a lot about how we view our current situation and what political moves we would be willing to support you know, under the current conditions that exist now. I'll put it to you this way. I, I, in addition to being a student of history, um, I work with people in a spiritual counseling capacity. And one of the primary tools I use is called narrative therapy. And one of the mm -hmm. most important insights that narrative therapy offers is that the stories we tell about our past in many ways shape our future. Right. And, and it's, it's true for the individual, it's true for the nation. If we tell mm -hmm. a story that we won in 1948 because we survived and the shadow of the Holocaust plays a very important role there, then you can understand a few things about our culture today. First of all, the willingness to, like, to sacrifice central elements of our homeland and give them away as if they were bargaining chips. Second of right. all, the- Tre Treating um, our, our homeland as real estate. As, exactly. As a commodity. Second, yeah, good, yeah, as a commodity. Second of all, the, the fact that um, moral clarity, which can guide collective action, um, comes back to the desperation of 48. If you look, especially in the last sort of 20 years of the very messy struggle we've been having with the Palestinians and occasionally with our other neighbors, there, uh, Israel as a, as a society is always seeking that clarity of 48. We want to feel that our back is against the wall and we have no choice and it's an issue of survival and then we can wield force. We lack a narrative in which we have a heroic vision that allows us to use force in the service of what's good, right, and just, right? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a completely different narrative because in today's sort of postmodern world, there, there, there are no heroes. There's only villains and you know, victims and perpetrators. Right? Like a, a, a hero in today's postmodern world is just a, a perpetrator with better PR, right? Because they don't believe in good, right, and just. But we as a people, historically, that's our task in the world to illuminate right. with justice. But that demands an awful lot of us. And it certainly doesn't demand survival and living an easy life as the end result. Right. And uh, that brings us to your question about the Constitution, because I think that the way I hear you putting this forward is that if only Israel had a Constitution, we would have the clarity to know who we are, know what is right, and be able to move forward along that path. Am I correct? Well, potentially, I would say that the process of forging a constitution is meant to produce that. And in all mm -hmm. fairness, one of the reasons, at least in the sort of historical literature that I've spent time researching, one of the reasons that that was not done in 48 is because they felt that it would either tear the society apart to try to create such a consensus, or that it mm -hmm. simply was not possible on the arc of Jewish history to just slap together some document after being home for, you know, a few decades, which I appreciate, but I think right. Igizman, I think the time has come. Right. Okay. So, so there is validity to that argument, I think. I, I'm even 
look, on a deeper level, I'm generally an optimistic person. I look at the nation of Israel developing 72 years into independence, and I think we've moved not only from the childhood stage of development on a national level to the adolescent stage, I think we've even moved past that adolescent stage to like kind of an, almost like an older teenager that's already looking for answers and willing to accept that the answers or the sources of information that it had been rejecting as a rebellious adolescent now might have some validity and might have Mm -hmm. something to impart to us. So I think the nation is getting healthier, and I think we're on a very positive trajectory. There are a lot of societal shifts. There are a lot of sociocultural shifts taking place in Israeli society today. And I'm of the opinion that a constitution might be something worth delaying until the balance of power has shifted in favor of those with a deeper understanding of Jewish identity and a deeper appreciation for what this is really all about. It, it could be. I'm more interested in the, in the process than the product. Mm-hmm. In all, you in mean all the conversation? So, so that's what I would call the post-colonial conversation, meaning that yeah. like, I, I think we're saying the same thing, maybe, that in terms of an, uh, a static constitution, a hard constitution that we will be you know, beholden to politically, societally moving forward, I think that document isn't ready to be canonized right now. I don't think the nation is ready for like a real concretized static constitution that will inform where we go, you know, forward. Yeah, although, because I think we're undergoing so much of a, of a shift. Right, but I mean, constitutions are by nature uh, work in progress if done properly. Not everyone understands that. And I'm okay. concerned that a lot of our politicians are cynical enough, and certainly our Supreme Court is, is well, cynical enough to try to use the Constitution to maintain power over a society that just demographically or socioculturally... Um, it's shipped out from under it. <laughs> yeah, meaning they've lost power. And, and I think that's all these institutions, the media, academia, the judicial system, these are all ways that we can say... Israel's westernized ruling class, the heirs of Mapai, loose heirs of Mapai, have been able to hold on to power, maintain control in a society where the population is really not with them anymore. I mean, in our Knesset, the Labour Party, the party of Mapai, is pretty much disintegrating at this point. Yeah, I mean, disagree. You can put that in the past tense, I would say. Mm. Um, Yeah, but listen, I'm just as worried about that notion of... uh, the cynical usage of a constitution in the present as I am in the future. Because remember, technically Israel does have a constitution. Basic it laws. Was, well, the basic laws, beyond the basic laws, the, the Supreme Court in the mid-90s mm. did what was called a process of entrenchment. I can send you an episode on this as well. But we, basic, we are essentially the only country in the world which has a constitution promulgated by the Supreme Court itself. Uh-huh. And, and, and this is the beginning of the disaster that we face today, where there's open war between the legislature this is under Aaron Barak, and the court. This is, this this is under, under Aaron Barak, who Aaron Barak. was called by one of the most important jurists in America, a, 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 judicial, a, a judicial buccaneer, meaning mm-hmm. like he, he simply seized whatever territory he felt. He's a pirate who, listen, again, I'll give him credit, he believed in his own values and felt that he was mm-hmm. defending society, but the means right. that he used have, um, have decimated the structures of democracy in our country. And, and, it's interesting. and so I think that the danger is now. 
Well, well, let me ask you this. Why do you think, and I have my own answer to this, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Why do you think so many Israelis uh, and so many supporters of Israel in the West look at our Supreme Court, and I'm talking about Aaron Barak and his successors, as the court creates defenders, <laughs> well, yeah. I, as defenders of Israeli democracy, as defenders of democratic values in Israeli society, like so we're uh, two pieces to it. Number one is okay. that you always have to make a distinction between democracy as a um, as system a, of government versus set of values. Proce- yeah, I would say procedural versus substantive. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you said it probably in a language that people can understand, right? Meaning, uh, so so Western liberal democratic values mm-hmm. are are certainly you know, what the court represents in the discourse within our country. And right. I think They're that's seen the, as the guardians of that in our society. Exactly. Against the dark forces of, you know, fill in the blank, religion, mm-hmm. you know, uh, nationalism, uh, tribalism, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons I think that they're looked at in that way by that much of diaspora Jewry, by many mm-hmm. of the Western governments, because cause that's what makes people feel safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's Stability. where they feel... Not just stability, that those are the shining no, light. No, but, but I, I, I don't just mean stability in limited sense. I mean that this neoliberal project works or that, right. or that right. Israel can be that. Right. And, but, but part of the problem is, is that it's increasingly anti-democratic need. In, yes, to, to, to assert those values. And this is where right. you have to remember that, that oftentimes you know, the, the, how many human beings were sacrificed for the sake of humanity, right? So how much, how may, how, how much democracy, how many people are going to lose their democratic rights in service of democracy? And they, they, at a certain point, if the court takes power to itself in service of democratic small d ideals, is that really a democratic act? No, it's a balancing act. And that's why to this day in human history, there has been no better political experiment than the United States Constitution. And I'll go back to my point that one of the most important works uh, understanding political philosophy is the, um, the Federalist Papers. You got to read the Federalist Papers, man. You well, the, the Federalist Papers the were really in a, but when you talk about the Federalist Papers, you're talking about an attempt of a new society to define itself and create political structures that will express what it sees as its identity. And its divine mission. And that's mm-hmm. one of the most important things about the Federalist Papers is that the founders had an understanding that their task was not simply sort of um, cultural stability and political success, that, that they believed in the sacred nature of their task. And it's something that, that Am Yisrael can't avoid. Mm-hmm. We, we can't avoid taking well, up even that more so that, because for us, it's actually real. When we talk about the United States, we're talking about the Fourth Empire. We talk about the inheritor of ancient Rome something that really became, from a Jewish historiological perspective, Malchut Esav, the, the yeah, kingdom of Esav, the kingdom they, of Adol. But meant to be the tikkun of Esav, I would say. Um, yeah, well, without sure. getting too much into the historiography that, we, that you and I actually share, I, the, the, the opportunity there is the tikkun of Esav. It's one of the ways I understand the very deep and problematic mm-hmm. relationship between our present government here and what's happening mm-hmm. there. But, but be that as it may, I, I think that we both agree that Am Yisrael has a much more uh, cosmic and global question which we can birth into the world in terms of we can't afford for our discussion to be simply about our own sort of political stability mm-hmm. and even cultural self-actualization. We need to contemplate the question of what is the divine mission which is being offered to us as a, as a 
as an expression of humanity here and now. How do we express universal values that are uniquely Jewish through this nation state that we created? Yeah, we need to think of ourselves as a keystone in the architecture of the next phase of human development. Right. Like what comes after capitalism? What comes after the systems of government that people are familiar with today that claim to be democratic, but I'm not sure so many are actually democratic. Some of them procedurally, some of them substantively, but yeah, no, no, no question. No, meaning for me, democracy is really empowering people to be able to influence the structures they live under. And Direct think, democracy, participatory right, democracy. Exactly. And, and when uh, the Supreme Court masquerades at, or is perceived as the champion of democratic values or the, the guardians of democratic values, it's really, they're really the guardians of westernization. They are yes. the guardians. They, they are the champions of that camp that wants Israel to be a Rhodesia, that wants Israel to be an outpost of Western civilization in the Middle East. And you can just see by the reality of what the state of Israel and its population has become and is becoming, that value, that, that goal becomes less and less possible as we move forward, meaning that this- And procedurally less democratic. Right. And I think blue and white was offering that. I think in the last three elections this country had over the last year or so, the blue and white party was basically offering a return to 1950s Israel that was perceived as this bastion of Western values, Mm -hmm. you know, in an otherwise savage region. It was a very, I I looked at the Kaholavan, the blue and white campaigns as very kind of- um, Nostalgic. Nostalgic, but for a very colonial Israel, really for like very white Israel, very kind of like the Ashkenazi generals and Yair Lapid at the head and always contrasting themselves. You know, look, you, you would see these big billboards, you know, and then you would see next to it like a yellow and black as opposed to the blue and white, the yellow and right. black or Kahanachai with like Bibi right. surrounded by Michal Ben-Ari and Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich and kind of guys who look really Jewish. <laughs> right. There's this like ugly Israel, regardless of what you think of their political positions and on yeah. various issues. There's this like threat of an Israel that's ethnic. rising and it's ethnic and it's very Semitic and it really shares a lot more in common with our neighbors than uh-huh. the Tel Aviv Mapai Zionism that blue and white Kocholavan was attempting to get us back to. And, and by the way, there's so many sort of, sort of cross currents between that and what's happening in American politics today. But I, as I said to a, a, a real a dear colleague of mine who, who is a diehard anything but BB type, I said to her, your hope for democracy is three generals and a media personality? Right. Like, I, I, like, like, I think you want to think twice about that. <laughs> you know? No, but, but you, nobody you really did. want democracy. I mean, no, but nobody the did. Irony, because, the irony is because, nobody really did. And because the, one of the challenges here, and this kind of, um, I think, hits the nail on the head, is that, is that if you want to move beyond democracy as a set of values that basically elitist organizations protect, and you want to mm-hmm. move beyond democracy as a technical procedural like people get to vote. Because remember, there's countries all over the world that we would not call democratic, which do indeed right. indulge in voting, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you want to move toward what you're speaking about, which is participatory democracy is the, is the phrase in sort right. of uh, political philosophy. Then what you have to do is the hard work of cultural evolution. Right. You have to no, instill within people, not only education, but a sense of commitment and engagement. And I think it really, um, to me, there's a huge invitation 
in the situation that we find ourselves in right now with the whole COVID crisis. Okay. And I'll tell you what it is, and then I'll, then I'll, I'll, I'll let you tell me what you think. Is that, you know, we've been talking about essential services, right? You've been locked mm-hmm. in your house. We haven't been locked in my house, you know, but we're allowed to go ish. out. What? Ish. Yeah, ish, exactly. Ish. You know, ish, ish, ish. But, but, but the key is we're supposed to make distinctions between essential and non-essential, right? Okay. And not only we're not, we're not making those decisions, actually, it's the government that's taking it upon itself to make those distinctions. But just think about how important that invitation is. Figure out within our society what is actually essential and then mm-hmm. figure out how do we put our energies into that and then what do we do when the fact is 25 percent of our country is out of work because apparently what they were doing was not essential what does that tell us mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how do we how do we sort of reorient into a world where where people are able to pour their hearts and soul into things that are really essential uh, and any conclusions well, part of it is to move away from this um, materialist conception that, that the purpose of the human being is to consume mm-hmm. and, and, and more toward a conception where the purpose of the human being is to serve, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and because, you know, like this- And to create. A, yes. To create, okay. to produce. Create, to... Create, create and serve. I, I take right. that- but, but not produce based on profit, not produce based on- I Or create say, based no on how much I've... we're going to- consume. I have no problem with profit. That's the problem I have. It's not creation for the, just for the sake of consumption. I have no problem right, with no, profit. It's, it, no, but it's when profit becomes a driving force. Like, for example, yes. I, I think that one could make the argument that an economy not structured solely on the desire for profit might have had a whole bunch of masks and breathing machines and uh, test kits ready in advance of all this. Right. Or would, be able to, would have been able to pivot more cleanly toward it. Because you could say, ah, the purpose of our labor is to serve life. And part of that, you know, is to make sure that we have, you know, these resources available or that we've tooled our economy to the point where, where we can pivot. And by the way, I do have to give, again, once again, credit where credit is due. Here in the Look, Israel's Israel, doing a great job. Yeah. I, I, it was more of a critique of the American system of the United States. Yeah. And, the and, I, and I'm very wary of, of, of the, the worship of profit for profit's sake. But I think that the, mm-hmm. the, the, the finger I really want to point is, is um, consumption for consumption's sake, mm-hmm. okay, which has to do with the materialist conception of the world in which the human being is just an animal of a higher order and that the pleasure principle is a supreme above all. Whereas mm-hmm. the, the question of whom we serve, and you don't have to be a believer in God or the Jewish mission, because you could, what you could say is, I, well, I serve as my fellow humans, I serve my family, I serve a, my creative vision, like you're saying. I don't, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have to dictate to people who they serve, but understanding that, that, that one of the highest expressions of humanity is the acts of service. Mm-hmm. And that's the realm in which we can never be replaced and we can never be non-essential. Right. No, that I agree. And I, and I agree that whether we're going to call it a constitutional program or an Israeli version of the Federalist Papers or a post-colonial conversation, I would say that that is an objective of Jewish liberation right now. Like right now, the stage that the Jewish people are up to in our national development is having the deeper conversation over what kind of society we are creating, what are the values of that society, what's the identity being expressed by that society in its policies, in its institutions, in what we consider to be essential versus non-essential when these pandemics hit. I think that is part of our mission now. And, And I think one of the things for me that's been very disturbing about the the last couple of years politically, and and I think brings us back to this conversation, Mm -hmm. is the lack of ideological depth, even Mm. among many nationalist Jews, 
when it comes sure. to what is this really all about? What lessons can we learn from the past? I mean, you and I are very much students of history and you and I definitely employ narrative therapy in our work, maybe slightly differently, but we're both you sure. know, adherents to this approach. And what I see all the time, and I'm seeing it more and more in the national camp, you know, among the Jewish right, is this kind of lack of understanding of the deeper issues, lack of understanding of history and the lessons that we should be deriving from history, and much more of just kind of like, oh, that guy said something I agree with, he must be good, and I'm going to support him and kind of close my eyes to where he might be leading us. And I think this has really been true with our approach to Donald Trump, the, the Trump administration, oh. and the <laughs> deal of the century. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen so many, even, say, look, I'll, I'll give you an example. We had an article last week in Vision magazine on the San Remo conference, and this whole uh -huh. idea of how celebrating the San Remo conference reveals a very deep fundamental flaw in Zionism. Because mm -hmm. not just because it's silly, I think, at this point to try to use a San Remo, try to use San Remo to justify some legal position internationally, because I just don't think that's how international law works. I think that international law is in and of itself kind of a sham. It's used by powerful nations to push around weaker nations. Like yeah, you would it's never sticks the powerful use to beat the weak. Exactly. Like you would never see Britain held to the same standard as Libya or nah. America, the United States held to the same standard as and every once in a while, the system will throw the weak a bone to make them feel like it actually is functioning. You know, they'll, right. like, so, they'll, let, they'll let the international court make some judgment or something. Right. No so consequences. Clearly, and when it comes to Israel and our borders, regardless of what we can claim in a court of law to be our international legal right to such and such territory, at the end of the day, the international community has decided overall that it's in their interest for Israel to give up the land we won in the Six Day War. And so we can yell and shout about San Remo having legal teeth, but at the end of the day, the world will only accept that if it's in their interest to accept that. So making this argument, I think, is, is really naive. And beyond that, I think that just this very act of kind of giving the Western powers the ability to grant us rights to our land is very problematic. And I think the same kind of thinking that embraces and celebrates San Remo goes and embraces the Trump plan and tries to fight for Donald Trump to give us more of a right to our homeland or more of a claim to more of our country and using that as our moral currency or legal currency to be able to move forward with the policies we want. Yeah, I, the theme I hear you pulling out of this is that lacking some both ideological clarity, but even on a deeper level, level some imuna, some deep mm -hmm. faithfulness to principles that transcend the immediate, what people do is they seek comfort and power. If they mm -hmm. don't have it themselves, they, they are drawn to those who have it. And then, you know, whatever rhetoric power drapes itself in is simply just a, a tool for accumulating more of its own. Right? And, and so therefore the task I see ahead of us is, is um, and this is where I think both you and I kind of share that postmodern analysis perspective, which is that we need to uncover the discourse of power. But unlike the sort of nihilism that so often follows in the wake of postmodernism, we also are believers in our mission. Because once you unmask the discourse of power, then what we can begin to do is actually have a discourse of faith and vision. Right. And, and realize that we have more power than we think we do. 
Meaning that well, we yeah. don't have to rely on, you know, a better emperor in Washington to give us what we want. I mean, on the one hand, I think that Netanyahu has been successful in moving the Overton window. I mean, we have to admit that only a decade ago, the conversation all of our politicians, all of the journalists, all of the foreign diplomats were having in regards to our land was how much of the West Bank is Israel giving up and when. Whereas mm -hmm. now the international conversation and the political conversation internally is, are we going to annex? How much? much are we going to annex and with whose permission are we going to annex? And I think and that shift in conversation is a political accomplishment for Netanyahu. It is. The question is how dangerous a game is he playing? And, you know, only the other day, the Trump administration came out and said explicitly that annexation is tied to the entire deal of the century, the entire Trump plan, meaning if you are not moving forward towards relinquishing land, surrendering parts of not only Judea and Samaria, but also the Negev uh, for the yep. creation of a Fatah-led Palestinian state, then there is no annexation. Like you That's can't go ahead and take the parts of the plan you like. And it's like cold it's water in the face of all of the Jewish nationalists who've been functioning with such a shallow paradigm until now. Yeah, because as you pointed out, they only are understanding the discourse of power and what they're lacking. And it's true on one level, Netanyahu has made huge accomplishments and I don't want to discount that, but it's all founded on an unstable base. Because really the conversation that we need to be having on some level is what type of society are we looking to build? Because what I understood right. in your point about the Fatah led is that, is that you know, the world we're building there or we're allowing to be built <laughs> by commoditizing our homeland is one that we'll have to dismantle at some point, right? <laughs> like it, it, it's just not, it's not a world in which human beings ought live. It's not a world which we're going to be live, able to live in peace with. And what's it going to right. do to And not a society of Palestinians, right? Like, no, who, I, who yeah, wants to force that, I think for granted that reality. No, and sadly, but that's sadly, unfortunately, part of that to circle back around to our beginning mm -hmm. is that by demonizing the entire Arab world as the sole sort of uh, enemy in our existential struggle, the answer you get, and I've heard this from real liberals, what do I care about what society they build? That's their problem. Like, really? You're talking about Israeli, you're talking about liberal Zionists. Yes, liberal Zionists. liberal Zionists. Yes, okay. yes, yes. All right. All right. Well, Rabbi Mike Foyer, such a pleasure to talk to you. Always. And I'm um, so glad we get to share this conversation with the rest of the world through the Next Stage podcast at Vision Magazine. I urge listeners to go check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage two six. Mike, thank you so much for being with me. And uh, let's do this again soon. All right. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it. And uh, Pesach Sheni Sameach. Pesach Sheni Sameach.